0: okay um yeah. well thanks for hanging out and just sticking around um so in this third part i want to revisit the luke's version of the lord's prayer and ask particularly about what uh you know what the implications are for our praying today and i think you know as i've heard in a couple tables i've been at but also i'm sure in others of your tables as well uh you know our sort of more scripturally oriented exploration this first few moments has been really is quite focused, right? It's really looked at two books, Luke and Acts, and in fact, as I think you also know, I mean, it's been hardly, it we barely scratched the surface, even in these two books about prayer, both what is explicitly stated there as well as maybe understanding the dynamics of uh, what goes into that as well. And again, I mean, if we really wanted to get a, you know, sort of a um, a more in depth engagement or understanding of Jesus praying, we Really, do some comparative we'll look at what Mark and Matthew say about prayer. Compare that with Luke, and then John has his own agenda about how he describes Jesus, especially the relationship to the Father. That will add a whole bunch of other uh, perspectives and dynamics into the conversation. And then, of course, you've got the rest of the Testament, and then you've got six, what, no, uh, thirty-nine other books in that other Testament that we would have be able to spend lots and lots of time on in terms of exploring. So, of course, we're not doing time any of that. We're just being quite uh, narrowly focused. But I think focus is helpful. We have a limited amount of time. Uh, and you have the rest of your lives to read the Bible. So and <laughs> us, you as go on. Um, But for more next few moments, I want to really ask the question, well, what about our praying today? Uh, and, and what about our praying in light of what Luke says? So remember now, if you're a first century Christian, it's it's unlikely that you would be reading you know four gospels it's unlikely that you might be reading period <laughs> things were read to you <laughs> by and large right and um and so you might have one one gospel maybe in 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 your congregation by the end of the first century and as far as you're concerned this apostolic word in this gospel was God's in some way God's way of speaking to us right and Idea of uh, canonical authority of the New Testament gospels at that time is you know fairly fairly minimal, but again the sense would be that if, if you were you know part of the community or who you know part of the Theophilus household, let's put it that way, right? That all you needed to know about Jesus was right there. Whatever, Mark, Matthew, what are those? You know, um, this account was a valid account. In fact. This good doctor had done his research and told us all about it. And so, um, you know, how do we understand this? And so, kind of pretending like we're, you know, first 21st century Lucan Christians, at least for tonight, for the next few moments, right? Um, what, what about if we prayed the prayer that Luke says Jesus, taught us to pray? Father, hallowed be your name, right? So here's this interesting uh, opening. In which we are invited to address the one to whom we pray in ways that are, on the one hand, intimate, and on the other hand, um, distanced, with a certain degree of reverence, with a certain degree of awe, with a certain degree of uh, recognition of the holiness of this one to whom and with whom we are invited or we're inviting into us. Right? So this is a very interesting space in which these words themselves uh, invite mixed and hybrid kinds of postures and and evoke uh, a different sensibilities and different uh, senses units. Uh, on the one hand, acknowledging closeness. On the other hand, honoring. Again, right, uh, we're, we're, we're walking this spying line here with regard to these words. And it also invites us to think about how, Damn. um it. It invites us to think about, on the one hand, uh, our earthly fathers. And invites us to think about our earthly fathers in relationship to, our heavenly father. And of course that brings up all kinds of now potentially interesting and maybe even troubling dynamics because maybe for many of us or maybe for most of us here in this room, we've had caring and wonderful and loving earthly fathers. But we'll probably also experience different sides of our fathers in different contexts. And maybe for some of us, we haven't had caring and loving earthly fathers, or maybe haven't had fathers in our upbringing, or or maybe we've had fathers who have left us, or left our families, and we've got images and experiences and memories of fathers in those respects. So the invitation then to say Abba, to the Heavenly Father, comes with some risk in our context today. And it comes with a degree of them pressing into then Jesus' own sense in which he found a way to recognize that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who created the world um, was yet at the same time someone in whom he could intimately and fully trust. I think that's one of the invitations of Jesus' teaching us to pray. Now, for those of us who've had wonderful earthly fathers, then maybe trusting in this kind of God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is easier. For those of us who haven't had warm and caring earthly fathers, then extending ourselves into this kind of trust and having confidence that that this kind of God, the world who holds the world in his hands, will will if you will. Uh, reassured that trust, right, will secure us amidst the fragilities, the vulnerabilities of life. So, think about all the things that life could throw our way. The invitation to pray, Father, hallowed be your name, is also an invitation to trust the God of this life and the God of this kind of world, a world that has hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. That sometimes do good things like three apostles when they're singing at midnight <laughs> but other times not so good things right so, so the invitation to trust in this kind of God is to trust that the God of this kind of world is nevertheless the one who can embrace us right so it's It's a, it's a risk, isn't it? It's a risk, isn't it? You know, if we've got wonderful human relationships, we might learn how to trust our parents, our spouses, our children, etc., 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 right? Trust isn't easily generated. So you can imagine, and again, this I think, Jesus' invitation. The trust that he invites us to step into obviously has to be one also that we are willing to risk to cultivate. Remember I said earlier, right, that, that Jesus didn't just wake up one morning and say, Abba, Paulin. At least I think the way in which we can read Luke's account. right? Um, but, but Jesus, over the course of his life, learns to trust to the point where Father, if you can reveal this cup for me. But even if you can't, I still trust you. That's that's big risk. Right? And and did that you know, did God come through? Well, what do you mean by coming through? Is the fact that he died mean that he did or he didn't? Okay, maybe we can say, well he did in the sense that he was raised from the dead. Okay. Um you know, I can I can go with that to one to one or another level. But but it's often the case that we expect that when God comes through it means he spares me from the really bad thing that could happen. And in this case, Jesus actually went through that. Right? And yet, if you will in anticipation of that, he says the God for whom these things nevertheless happen is the God who has trustworthy with whom you can handle an intimate relationship with. Hey, how's that intimate relationship going to come about? How's that trust going to come about? In part through, I think, uh, your, your and my willingness. Just like any relationship with you right have, right? Really, if you have a good relationship with your spouse? You probably have to work at it a little bit. What does it mean for us to come to the point of being able to trust this kind of God amidst this kind of world, amidst this kind of world's circumstances? All right. Um, the invitation into this relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob then is followed by saying, Lord, your kingdom comes. So notice how this prayer invites, you know, first and foremost, a uh, kind of a, a suspension or a making secondary my kingdom or my needs, my wants, my this is my that is. So for Luke's prayer, Father, hallowed be your name. Let's talk first about what you want to do. Whereas most of the time, our prayers are, Lord, uh, I need this, that, and the other today, <laughs> and like two minutes ago, please. Right now, we'll get to that in a moment here, right? But again, I want to just notice how the disciples. Say, oh, Lord, how should we pray? Father, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Uh, Thy kingdom come. Relative to Luke's story, is the good news uh, of, you know, Jesus. Being filled with the spirit to declare good news to the poor, to release the captives, to open the eyes to the blind. That's That's the mission of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And then the mission of the apostles of the book of Acts is to be filled with the same spirit who filled Jesus that was given to the apostles so that they could bear witness to Jesus, starting in Jerusalem, or in this case, in Madison, Wisconsin out there into, what, Milwaukee, right? Maybe into Chicago, and to the ends of the earth, okay? Your kingdom come. Uh, may Jesus' presence, may Jesus' teachings, may Jesus' purposes be manifest in our lives is part of the invitation, and i um, praying that the kingdom of the Lord comes, then also invites us to think about the kingdom dynamics of this world that we're all navigating, right? So think about our, I don't want to get political here, but think about our national discourse, okay? And think about the things that we're concerned about. The economy, immigration, war in the Middle East right now, Uh, Think about the ways in which um, our lives in this world are dominated by the kingdoms of this world. What does it mean for us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come amidst the kingdoms of this world and the struggles that the kingdoms of this world have, right? Um, All of our inter-kingdom struggles uh, are exacerbated or or etc. by intra kingdom struggles, our struggles within this country it's also so um how how does the prayer for Lord your kingdom and the prayer of Lord your kingdom come invites us to attend to what God wants to do in this world in all of its complex. How do we pray for the good news of the gospel and its impact on uh, the realities of this world that our lives have to navigate. And uh, finally, how is the, the giving and the arrival of the Holy Spirit related to God, the coming of God's way? And how might this rate of the Spirit in our lives uh, be the ongoing answer of God to this segment of the prayer? Uh, I'm intrigued also by how in the first chapter of the book of Acts, uh, after um, Jesus had spent 40 days with the apostles and had taught them about um, the kingdom of God further. At the very end, before his ascension, remember the apostles came up to him and said, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? And, of course, there's a lot of historic, It's very there's a bit of historicity behind that question about Imperial Rome and the governance of places like Palestine and, and Judea and so on and so forth and um obviously this question of the apostles was part of a long history hundreds of years of history of Israel first under Persia and then under Assyria I'm mean, sorry first under Assyria and then under uh, Babylon and Persia and then Greece and then Rome it seems like one after another kingdom Ruling over Judea. Lord, aren't you at this time going to restore all this talk about God's kingdom? Well, when's the kingdom of God going to kick out the Romans? And of course, Jesus answered that question very, very directly, right? <laughs> Go and wait and pray, right? And you shall receive power after the Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. But interestingly. Starting in Jerusalem and into Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And for again for, for, for you know for for the apostles and for Luke, the ends of the earth were his role. That's where Paul ends up in Acts twenty-eight. And Jesus' story unfolds as Luke tells us in chapters two and three, in the days of Augustus Caesar and in the days of Tiberius Caesar. Luke is fully alert to how this Jesus story and the story of what happens with Jesus' disciples unfolds in this particular political context of the first century Mediterranean world. And so, in some respects, you might say, Jesus' answer to the question, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel, was, don't think about that. Here's the Holy Spirit, go start preaching. That might be one valid response or interpretation of Jesus' response. But another interpretation of Jesus' response could also be something like, yes, I am going to restore the kingdom to Israel, and I'm going to do it by filling you with the Holy Spirit. And the things that you do are going to be part of that response, part of that restoration, part of that renewal of Israel first and foremost, but also of Gentiles starting in Jerusalem. You see how many there's a couple different ways here to sort of hear Jesus' answer, and I think it's consistent with Jesus' instructing the disciples, pray this way, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And finally, now that we pray for the world, for the Middle East, for Ukraine, D.C., Chicago, etc. okay, give us this narrative. Consistent with um, um, trusting in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of the world, to be the one who intimately accompanies us, in whom we trust and trust ourselves. Consistent with that sentiment, then, is also the invitation to pray, give us this day our daily bread not in the sense that it alleviates even from the responsibilities of planting and harvesting and so on, the bread that we might eat, but in the sense of also recognizing our dependency upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created the world and all things in it to be the one on whom we depend, through whom we are enabled, and by whom we secure our sustenance from moment to moment and from day to day. This apostolic training therefore expresses on the one hand a dependence on God, on the other hand then leads us to dependence, right? I mean, our inclinations raised as we are at this time of the world in this context of North America, and uh, all of the privileges and the blessings that many of the most of us have, um, the ways in which we recognize how we are blessed, and so on and so forth, leads us to take responsibility for ourselves, not depend on one another. Go, Go get our, you know, whatever it is that we feel um, Where we you know we want to or, or are called to do, depending upon God, is a posture that has to be cultivated, and in that respect, prayers like this help us to cultivate that posture of dependence, right? Um, uh, so on the one hand, they could express so when we when we instinctively cry out, Lord, help, we recognize at that moment that cry reflects the fact that we are not in control of this situation. That's an instinctive response. And those happen to us here and there, periodically. Right? This prayer, though, is one that anticipates those moments. This prayer was one that, that cultivates a sense of ongoing recognition that from moment to moment, and even the most mundane things like the meals that we eat, that we do say grace for, right, reflects that ongoing sense in which we want to recognize our dependence, our reliance on God, and then cultivate that posture of depending on God, right? So so think about this prayer not simply as the content of what we ought to do, but the ways it invites us to shape ourselves and how we Go around in our, in our world, in our lives, uh, in our day to day. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. I think it's interesting here that um, sin is the falling short of the mark, to use another uh, notion in particularly uh, the letters of the New Testament. Uh, the language for sin and the language for debts, which are a bit low economically. Uh, or use in relationship to economic, our, our economics. These are brought together here in, in this trip, right? Forgiving us, the forgiveness of our sins, uh, the forgiveness of our falling short of the mark, is in part related also to our indebtedness, what we owe to God, and also what we owe to one another, right? In a world of what I call late finance capitalism, we owe lots. We live as perpetual debtors in some respects, okay? What does it mean for us to forgive one another in those contexts? I think that the, um, the first disciples of Jesus had an inkling of what this might have meant when, as they were filled with the spirit, it tells us that they collected to, uh, the things that they had, sold what they had, in order to make provision for everyone else or everyone so that none had need. So there's a way in which they, they lived out this understanding of receiving forgiveness for sins and debts in relationship to God and then in relationship to each other. And so in, in that respect, I would then say that the sense of economic indebtedness, while not absent from this prayer, is actually uh, emphasizing us how important it is that our relationships are full. Think about the falling short of the mark here and the forgiveness that is needed as provided in by God in Jesus Christ as resecuring that relationship between God and us, right? So that we can approach and say, Abba, in trust and in, in, and in intimacy. Otherwise, if the sins are not forgiven, then we will feel indebted in depth. Similarly, our human relationships, whether at a, in a personal level or at a contract, contractual level, as long as there are debts involved, meaning as long as there are there's a falling short, as long as there's a sense of being owed, whether it's financially or in other respects, then there's always going to be some kind of obligatedness. That then structures the relationship yes. in a certain respect rather than in the kind of holy, uh, relationally reconciled way in which I think this prayer is also wanting us to pray and therefore to experience, right? So think about this then as forgive us our sins, for ourselves, forgive everyone indebted to us, so that we can be rightly reconciled to Alba and to one another, right? So again, it doesn't necessarily mean that we resolve all of our financial obligations and debts, but it means that it resituates those obligations and debts within an overall set of other relations that are life-giving and uh, uh, whole, that allow us to, to live wholly. Our wholeness then, in that respect, is Perhaps conditional, transactional in some respects, uh, uh, in relationship to God's forgiving our sins in Jesus Christ, and then our own forgiving of the sins, the debts, the obligation, the hurts, the failures that others have in relationship to us. Right? For us to to not be to not forgive. Uh, Will then mean that we live out the rest, you know, as long as those debts or those sins are not forgiven, horizontal, then we will live with remembrance of, and therefore the hurts, the feelings, the traumas of that relationship, whatever is still that's owed to us. For us to be free, right, we'll need to find ways to forgive. Um and what's interesting here is the prayer is, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who has done it to us. Interesting. Um, um, Lord, Abba, we trust you, because I know that you can forgive us our sins. Why? Because we've forgiven others who sinned against us. That's... Uh, Perhaps a more challenging way to, uh, to 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 listen to, but then also to embrace and maybe to, enact this prayer. And do not bring us to, time of trial. We pray when we reach the end of our capacities and resources. Right, help as we, as I mentioned, we won't. Um. Do not bring us to our trial. Lord, help us to avoid earthquake. Sorry. We hope the the next town over doesn't get hit with the earthquake, but at least make this town not get hit with the earthquake. Okay. I mean, that's a very, very self centered way, right? Uh, it's a very good way. Pray. I'm sorry? Californian prayer. That's <laughs> good. Yep. I live on a San Andreas Fall Line, so, but. Maybe I should pray this prayer. Well, I'm just... <laughs> I love but I think we also, this prayer also invites us to think about not just uh, avoidance, but preservation. Because we know that trials will come, trials do come. And what we need is capacities to endure and persevere, right? Do not bring us to town, trial. And yet we know that when they do come, right, uh, be with us during times of trial as well. Um, Can we persevere through life's trials with the accompaniment of the Father's Spirit and the prayers of the Son? So again, think of how Jesus, again, as we've talked about at the very beginning, uh, regularly prayed for his disciples, and of course, other parts of the New Testament speak about Jesus as our intercessor, one who prays for us. Okay, um, and so, do not bring us, Lord, Father, Abba, the time of trial. When times of trials come, sustain us by your Spirit through those times, so that we can endure. And it may well be that at some points in every one of our lives, we will no longer endure. And then at those moments, Father, perhaps we may be in a position to also say, because we have habituated ourselves into that dependence, into your hands, we commit our spirit as our final prayer. So we've talk a little bit about the hows, whys, and what's of this mysterious thing we call prayer.